Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Anne and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Now that Game of Thrones has ended, I think it's fair to say that it wasn't the White Walkers or the Mother of Dragons that's the real problem in America today. The reality is that we're living through our own Game of Loans where we have over 44 million Americans owing close to $1.5 trillion in outstanding student debt. That is second only to credit card debt. So if you're keeping score at home, folks, that's like 40% of loan borrowers are currently in default, delinquency, or just gave up and dropped out of college. Seriously, if you thought dragons were bad, how about the government acting like a loan shark and colleges raising tuitions massively each year? One would think this industry is in desperate need of alternative pathways, or at least innovation, disruption, and leadership in student debt advice and reform. Well, guess what? Help is on the way, and our guest this week, Kelly Peeler, since graduating Harvard in 2010, and a brief stint on Wall Street, and I will add she is a Westfield, New Jersey person like myself, she has some great advice. And now since her company, NextGenVest, also known as Money Mentors, was acquired, and we'll get to that later, can now even move beyond advice to provide socially responsible loans. So before meeting Kelly, here are some really scary facts. If you're driving, you may want to pull over. All taken from research from major Wall Street firms and the Federal Reserve. Only 25% of students are getting a return on their college investments, while tuitions have risen 400% over the last 20 years. The rest are returning home with massive debt. First-time homebuyers due to this will dramatically drop over the next two decades. Kids who might have started a business in their parents' garage, like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Bezos, for example, can't do that until they repay all of their debt. And this one really shocked me and we'll talk a little bit with Kelly about this, women take on more debt, almost two-thirds, and pay off more slowly. I mean, the reason is, sadly, that here we are still in 2019, and women are paid less in most professions than men, so that's probably the reason, but it just kind of shocked me. All right, I've depressed you enough. Stay with us. I promise it gets much better as we welcome to Financially Speaking Kelly Peeler, sometimes known as the college financial counselor in your pocket. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, thank you. So I always like to start this show telling everyone about my guest's story or journey that brought them to where they are today. Apparently, like a number of my guests recently, like Rachel Tipograph from Micmac, who sold her bat mitzvah gifts at age 13 on eBay, your entrepreneurship was alive and well in our mutual home state of Westfield in New Jersey as early as age 11 when you were dumpster diving. So I want to hear more about that. And now that I know that you're from Westfield, you have to tell me which dumpsters. (laughs) Uh, sure. So uh, not actually in Westfield, actually in Long Beach Island, I would dumpster dive, in your phrasing, I would go find furniture that people had thrown out, I would refurbish it, make it look like antique and then sell it for a couple thousands of dollars per piece. And as an 11 year old, that's a lot of money. Uh, so <laughs> that was my first foray into understanding that I didn't need to rely on an allowance. I could just make money myself using, you know, just time and my interests. Hmm. 
and just grabbing whatever you can, huh? Yep, <laughs> and, and watching the Martha Stewart show. That's right. how I got the ideas. <laughs> so growing up smack in the middle of the millennial generation, you'd live through some tough realities when it comes to finance, all right, you know, and the world. I mean, we're starting with 9-11 to the Great Recession. Not an easy time to leave college, even Harvard. What did you learn during those years that influenced you greatly towards starting your own business? Yeah, sure. So my dad lost his job. He was laid off post-financial crisis, and he had been in a pretty stable account, tax and accounting role and was kind of like the type of person who just kind of put his head down, would be at the same company forever. Everyone liked him, and to see him go through being laid off and having to sort of rethink and recalibrate his career was definitely kind of a little bit of a wake-up call to me to almost beg the question, well, I can go find a steady career and still get laid off, or I can kind of take the ride and do something very interesting or quote-unquote more risky and also end up at that same spot. Hmm. So the concept of safety safety in a, in a stable career was sort of wiped away from what I thought was actually very stable. So. That really just gave me a lot more risk tolerance and interest in reframing what I think is stability. So I don't actually think that starting your own company is hugely risky, as most people do. Sure. I understand, and maybe this was at Harvard or afterwards, but you also founded an Iraqi student-run incubator called Business Across Borders. I wanted to hear more about that, too. Yeah, sure. So I had also worked on, I had started a few organizations in college and a company in college as well, and that was sort of my first real foray. Left the first company and started Business Across Borders with a few other people, really because I was about to graduate from college and knew nothing about the Iraq War, which I thought was pretty embarrassing at the time. And as I mentioned, I had worked with a few other people to start a company in college that was sort of like a, the first brand ambassador for college women on different college campuses. It's called Her Campus Now. And really enjoyed just thinking through how do you like set up a website? How do you get people to use it? And that was growing very quickly. I left that and started Business Across Borders because I was just interested in fusing those two things. One, I knew nothing about the Middle East and I thought that was shameful. Two, I had just gone through this experience of setting up a company and having people, like lots of college kids use it. And so I was really interested in learning about the Middle East by doing through entrepreneurship. So I kind of just thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting to try to take the experience that I had, and we had won our undergraduate business plan competition as well, which was really cool. Um, so I was like, huh, I wonder if I could just put that and plop it into a war zone and see what happens. And Did you um, actually go to Baghdad and test I went it out? To, I went to northern Iraq in, in, in Kurdistan. And so yes, I did go there. We sold one of the companies. So mind you, selling is like different in a war zone than it yeah. would be an acquisition here. Of course. But yeah, it was great. We started a bunch of companies. I'm still in touch with a lot of people who started businesses over there. They frequently reach out to me on Instagram Messenger or Facebook Messenger. And we planted the seeds of entrepreneurship, or we're really kind of, the seeds were already there, which was very surprising to me in a delightful way. I really just kind of put framework and structure around the community such that it added a cadence of giving people the necessary tools to even just get started. 
So moving on in your journey, you went to work for J.P. Morgan and yeah. certainly got a real-life education in the, I guess, in the investment banking arena. So what were your takeaways from your time there and what led you there to kind of begin this whole mission and start NextGen Best? A few things. I had studied the history of financial crises in college during the housing crisis, and which is a very specific major. Mm -hmm. And so I went into cover financial institutions in the investment bank and then in asset management, specifically because I was interested in understanding how banks and the financial system work. That's when I, I switched over to asset management and I was asked to build couple hundred million dollar investment portfolio with the view of trying to short the student loan market. And that's when I was digging into the stats that you just mentioned, 44 million Americans, 1.4 trillion at the time in student loan debt. And I was really getting my hands dirty understanding how everything worked. And I was like, ah, oh, interesting. This feels like the next financial crisis. <laughs> um, and so as a student of financial crises, and someone who had built companies and organizations that really focused on Gen Z, whether it's in Iraq or with women in college campuses, I really loved the user that was essentially going to feel the brunt of student loans and knew that something wrong was happening. So I left JP Morgan really with the broader ambition of thinking about redesigning the entire student loan experience from the ground up, specifically catering Gen Z, right. and then created what's now Money Mentor. So I was fascinated learning what you've been doing in the Gen Z space with Money Mentors and kind of becoming this instant gratification texting resource for so many people in desperate need. Through my time serving on the Westfield New Jersey Board of Ed and being somebody that helped get financial literacy mandated in New Jersey schools, about 10 years earlier, I know firsthand what a big deal this is. I kid about this all the time, but a good friend of mine is a woman who was a New York Times bestselling author, was you know Oprah's person for many years, a woman named Neil Godfrey. And Neil talks all the time about growing up in the generation of moms vacuuming with pearls, and you know, the father knows best. But what was even more interesting that she would talk about, and this I've learned hasn't really changed a lot, is that it was easier to have the sex talk instead of the money talk. Yeah. And just always surprised me. So let's get into money mentors, though, and talk about what your mission was in, in setting up this specific disruption. Yeah. I mean, the mission was to redesign how the student loan experience looked like, felt like, was built for this, you know, our, our core user being Gen Z, and I'll get into what is Gen Z, but I like to say that our core user is a 19-year-old girl who spends two hours a day on Snapchat. So this type of person has zero patience for comparing financial aid letters that they get from a college to negotiating their tuition to dealing with a financial aid officer and walking across campus and talking to them and trying to figure out what like interest rate means. So they hugely value things like convenience. They're very much so stressed about all these topics, but the way that they communicate has been changing and more so towards messenger platforms. So kind of gone are the days where you could find and target like very well 17 to 19 year old kids on Facebook because there's declining numbers of that user base on Facebook. They're not there anymore because their moms are there. <laughs> so really was to create a simple, delightful, highly convenient and no bullshit way of going through easily the biggest and most significant financial decision, paying for college for Gen Z and guiding them and hand-holding them through the entire experience. So let's use this opportunity to talk specifically about 
defining Gen Z because you're a millennial, for example, I'm a baby boomer, and then there's Gen X, which I guess came after the boomers. So what year specifically is Gen Z? Yeah, so depending on who you talk to, it's anyone who's born after the year 2000. It qualifies as Gen Z. So you can think of them currently as like teenagers right. going did, to college. Did the Z have any? Just, they just grabbed the Z and figured it was available? <laughs> I, I don't actually know. That's a yeah. good question. I don't I've know never, where the Z came from. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's the last generation. The, the same, yeah, I guess so because they, after Gen X, I don't know, well, there is Gen Y, but I guess a little different. The so. planet will be destroyed after well, this generation. Yeah, I know. I hope, I hope it, this podcast makes it. So my experience with Gen Zers is that they're a pretty fickle generation. What exactly is their relationship to money? I know you talked a little bit more about that. And we're not stereotyping here. It's, it's funny, a, a woman I've had on the show a number of times, Erin, who's known as the broke millennial, Erin Lowry, and she gets really, really mad because she says, everyone's stereotyping millennials, and she just goes on and on and on. And I'm, we're not trying to do that here. Yeah. We're just trying to explain it. So what's the difference with the relationship to money specifically with Gen Z, why, why there was such a natural fit for what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, I'll start from like the financial, literal nuts and bolts on the financial side. So one is that without question, the student loan decision, meaning paying for college, is um, hands down the most significant financial decision in terms of stress and in terms of literal dollars that this generation will make ever. They likely will not own homes, as you mentioned before, right? So that's one, is that the weight of that decision financially. Two is like the broader sense of maturity that this user is at the moment in time that they're making that decision. So. When did you buy your, your first house, if I might ask? Uh, 91, so I was 31. 31. So think about how you acted and conducted yourself and how your finances were. You had a job at 31, I'm right. presuming. Yeah. You might have had a family by that time. Yeah. Not yet, okay. Yeah. But compare yourself at 31 to 18, right? So guaranteed none of those things. Yeah, and, <laughs> um, and, even, you just, and, even and your 26, brain wasn't even fully right. developed yeah. at that time. Yeah, and, and having the you know having a 26 and a 22-year-old, it's just so impossible for me to think of them buying a house even at 31. Right, so I give that example because the moment in time that student or user is making that decision is very different than when millennials would have or, or will be making their biggest financial decision, which is home ownership. So the time in the life cycle is totally different. The actual size of the decision is very different and much more confusing. So I'll get we can get into this, but very frequently, most students don't even know how much they owe. That's like not knowing how much your house cost. And then the last kind of bucket is really just generally in terms of brand authenticity and attention span. So Gen Z has the lowest attention span, lower than millennials. Everyone complains that millennials have no attention. Gen Z is lower because they've grown up with phones in their faces as opposed to coming up and being digitally native. They are much more in tune with messenger platforms, as I mentioned before. They have very little patience for things like crappy customer service, non-immediate responses, the concept of getting an email 24 hours later makes literally no sense to them. They don't even check email. So a lot of differences in terms of behavior, just in terms of like what they deem as baseline acceptability. And I don't think that that's like a stereotype at all. It's just, it's no, just no, it's, demanding it's, it's, great it's like brand customer service and convenience at the tip of their fingers because that's what they've grown up with. And what was the tipping point that told you, I think I, I can start a company here and, and help some of these folks? 
How did you discover the Gen Z generation? Because it's not you, but you know. <laughs> well, I've, I've worked with students now for 10 years in college, whether that's again in a war zone or on college campuses. And I just like that moment in life. I just like that transition period. I knew I would be able to find them pretty easily and figure out ways to recruit them, figure out how to find them in different channels. And it was just a, it was a big problem that a lot of people, I mean, I can get into like the product iterations, but at one point I had 300 kids who would, who somehow find, would find my information over my email, my Facebook, my Twitter, and they would just DM me questions around things like, hey, can you help me personally figure out how to like pay my loans? Right. And that's when I was like, all right, like I'm sure there's more of you out there if you're that desperate to talk to a stranger online. <laughs> right, right. It, you know, mostly because you're talking obviously very different in a war zone, but do you think that, is Gen Z global? I mean, totally, it's, yes. Uh, it's not an American thing? No, no, I mean, it's, it, it's how Gen Z is characterized by things like I mentioned before, attention span, brand authenticity, convenience. Yeah, um, which exists all over the planet. Like actual devices, right. like human needs that they have that are that are skewed versus millennials. So Gen Z is, will, I think, and it has been a few times called like the lonely generation. Right. Those are just very different behavior patterns than your generation, for mm -hmm. example. That's such a sad term, but it is, tr it is true. It is, it is well, that's why you see things like you right. know, ASMR trends, right. like Billie Eilish, mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of like cultural figures reflect, or the reason why they become predominant is because they reflect the needs and the like human behavior of a particular generation. So true. So let's talk about the texting experience with Money Mentors. What kind of training do the mentors get? I, I think it was really cool that you figured out a way to actually not charge for this service, and mm -hmm. we'll talk about that, but... First of all, how'd you find the folks to be mentors? And how do you continue to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was the first mentor. I was money mentor OG number one. <laughs> so but I- But you were money mentor number one, the Harvard degree, worked at JP Morgan. <laughs> but no one knew that. I didn't, right. I didn't brand that as experience. the money mentor. Right. I was just a money mentor. So no one knew that they were talking to me because I wanted to figure out a way to, to understand. I, I wanted the tone to be like they're talking to their cool older brother or sister, not someone who's intimidating or like went to Harvard or you know whatever. So the feeling of how I talked to people was very much so that way, which is friendly, relatable, delightful, encouraging, acknowledging and validating their feelings. So everything that I'm just talking about, by the way, has like nothing to do with typical personal finance <laughs> and nothing to do with like typical financial advisors or how you would think about addressing a huge major financial decision. I'm talking about emotion. And that was something that I saw was very missing in any of these discussions is actually like helping people cope with the stress of what they're about to like navigate through. The easiest way to do that was by having a one-on-one -on -one conversation that you could have when someone, when it was top of mind for someone, not when during the hours of nine to five, not when they had to go like walk somewhere like in person in your office, but at 11 p.m. on a Sunday when they were stressing about filling out their FAFSA. That's so, I was the first money mentor to answer your question. And then as I started building out the conversation streams and the copy for them and how we think about engaging with people and kind of the, the tone, I just started hiring other college students who I felt were very empathetic and who had loans themselves, had navigated through the whole process and trained them on how to talk to people in the same way. 
Interesting. And where were you finding them? I mean, what, you know, weren't necessarily putting, were you putting ads out or, I mean? We launched cities in a very boots on the ground type of capacity. So we do very little of the now over 100,000 people that we serve. Very, very few of them have actually come from like online. Most of them have come through us going into college campuses, high schools, just because our, we get 15 minutes of attention that way of onboarding someone versus trying to throw up an Instagram ad and have them come to a site that way. So are you getting a lot of support from guidance counselors and you know folks like that? Yeah. So we when we launch a city, so we serve now over, definitely over now, uh, 15% of college-bound students in New York City, 13% of college-bound students in Chicago, Philadelphia. So when we launch a city, we very quickly develop high penetration of college-bound students. And we do that through, again, a boots on the ground, like in high school, in college methods. What were some of the most common questions I think people would be interested to, you know, that came up and, and let's maybe just go through a couple of the answers. Yep. Common questions, <laughs> how, for people who don't know this, for financial aid, you normally have to fill out a FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid. So one of the most common questions would be, how do I reset my FSA ID password? <laughs> Which sounds stupid, but I always bring up that example because the system itself to do things to get free money absolutely suck. So like the actual hand-holding that needs to get done is extreme. So something like resetting your password could literally prevent someone from getting $5,000 a year to go to college and instead take out $5,000 plus interest in loans. So if you think about that, that's like $20,000 plus five, 6% interest over time versus free money. Right. But it's because someone would just be too lazy to like figure out how to like, uh, they'll block my account, I can't sign into the FAFSA, I'm not gonna fill it out this year. That literally happens. Right. No, I believe it, I believe it. And the, again, the majority of these conversations are around financial aid. Financial aid, and then it morphs into, that's, that's really the starting point. So a few other questions would be things like, where do I find scholarships that I don't have to write an essay for? Should I do work study? What types of loans should I take out? So when you get into a college, they will give you what they call a financial aid award letter, which is a generous way of saying a college bill, <laughs> which I think is bizarre that they're even allowed to say that. But in that, the college will quote unquote grant you different student loans and they'll have different interest rates and it'll be very confusing for a student. So we'll, uh, questions that students will ask are things like, what does this loan mean versus this loan? How much in loan should I take out? What do you think of this college versus this college? Like what package do you think is better? So really that's kind of the initial group of questions. And then we get into once you're in college, like how much should I be spending on food? What should my budget be? What credit card should I get? Kind of like any, any question thereafter. So the initial conversation obviously comes from them, not from you. You're, you're not out there, you know, hitting people's, you know, text every day. So the majority are just uh, coming no, that, to you? Not, or, or, not, not necessarily. I mean, we basically employ nudge theory. So our, and what nudge theory is, is that you can basically like nudge people in the direction of broader behavior change over a period of time, like weight loss, for example, like do small changes every day as opposed to try to lose 20 pounds in a month doing nothing. And so we will proactively reach out to students who we feel like might be in danger of not paying their loans or need help or they're at risk. So it's, it's definitely a two-way conversation, both inbound and outbound. Are you concerned sometimes maybe you're not getting accurate information? 
not necessarily, and the reason why I say that is because most students share the actual documentation with us, so we can kind of check the where the inaccuracies lie is where a student will just like not read those things and they won't remember what's like, oh yeah, they'll, they'll say things like, oh yeah, I have a lot in loans. And then if you press them and say, what's like, how much? They'll be like, uh, I forget, which is alarming. <laughs> and how do you match them up? So, so the folks that, that have been the mentors, are there some that, you know, this person is just really, really good with the FAFSA, or this person is just really good in talking about budgeting, and is there, or is it just sort of random? We have expertise. So we, within our Money Mentor community, we have expertise, and I should say as well that that's part of the reason why we built a pretty robust AI engine. So it's not just like me as a money mentor talking to like a couple thousand kids, it's me as a money mentor being powered by our AI such that I'm talking to the right students at the right time about the right things and I'm getting messages that are suggested to me based on the millions of conversations in our data set before. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions out there from the students or parents' perspective on applying for financial aid? You talked about FAFSA, which is certainly true. And obviously, you're out there helping you know, tens of thousands of people find money. And I'm curious, especially with Gen Zers, if they value education or are they more realistic to what the return on their investment's going to be? I wish they were more so that way. I think that that trend is increasing. But I don't think we're there yet. I definitely still think that embedded within Gen Z and especially their parents, like part of the American dream is to go to college. So people will figure out a way to fulfill their identity if it is going to college, whether it costs them an arm and a leg. <laughs> but to answer your question, the biggest questions from parents or misconceptions would be probably that they wouldn't qualify for financial aid. So a lot of parents think, oh, I have a nice home or I own two cars, like there's no way I'm gonna get money for college. And that might be true, but about $3 billion goes unclaimed in free federal aid. So you might as well try is our stance. Another misconception from parents and students is that you can't, that they don't understand that there's this concept of negotiating your tuition. So just to date, we've helped students negotiate $500,000 in their tuition costs, which people just don't think you can do that, and you can. And then lastly is that you shouldn't come up with a plan. Like, I, I'm just astounded by how many families, I guess this goes back to the sex talk, it's, it's, it's harder to talk about this, of coming up with a plan of, hey, we should go for college B versus college A. Well, but, but as a family, they will spend you know, weeks and weeks planning their vacation to Disney World or whatever. I mean, this is typical of the financial planning conversation yeah. that I've had with people for many, many years where you know, the amount of time they spend planning you know, this trip or you know, redoing their garage or whatever, but when it comes to the really critical things in life, like being able to afford their kids' education, yeah. they're not planning, and that's kind of what you're, you know, you're saying. Yeah, and not not just the like the nuts and bolts finances of it, but also the like once you get there, how should you be approaching it to kind of get your bang for your buck? So a lot of people don't even do like back of the envelope calculation of, okay, if I'm paying 70 grand a year and my kid is studying music, like what is a, a legitimate salary that they will make out of that, okay, call it 50 grand, how long is it gonna take for this kid to be able to pay this off? Like that back of the envelope calculation does not happen. Sorry to my alma mater, GW, because that's what they're charging. Not, not when I was going there, um, but 
it's certainly up there. Are you a wizard? I mean, this is just amazing. I mean, you know, you, you know, you, obviously you said there's some AI work and machine learning and bots that, that's going on, but I mean, this is you know really incredible how many people you're helping. Thank you. you know, really, it's terrific. So. You mentioned this earlier, and I think we share this. I'm a little bit also obsessed with the history of financial crises. I've lived and worked through a few big ones. I literally became a financial advisor on October 19th, 1987, was my first day as a Merrill Lynch account executive. So in your opinion, if nothing is done, and without getting political, which is kind of a no-no for my show, sadly, but do you think that the student debt balloon's about to burst and cause the next great recession or even worse? I mean, I get this question a lot. If I knew what the matchstick was, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> well, you were shorting student loans right. in college, so. I was, I, I, not on my own free will. I understand, <laughs> you, I, I understand, employed. yeah. But yeah, I, I can't tell you what the matchstick is. However, I know that things like exponentially increasing default rates, exponentially increasing total loan balances, exponentially increasing total wallet size of debt per person is untenable especially if people have no way of paying that off. Those factors are just, if you look at a chart, it's like, this isn't good. <laughs> Do I know what the magic is? No. Do I think that there will be a lot of major, massive changes needed in the future? Absolutely. Because if you just do not have jobs that allow you to pay off loans, people will not pay them. Right. And then we get into the whole saving crisis. And, you know, I spent a lot of time working with a lot of Gen Z and millennials with a lot of different organizations that are involved in a 401k plan. And there's the same question. I must, you know, I get this question, you know, 40 times a day when I'm at some of these companies and, well, what should I do? I have my student debt, but I really should be saving. Mm -hmm. That, is that a text that comes in? Not, so that's a little older than, than our demographic. That's more of a millennial like problem that they end up having of the like, oh crap, now I know how much I spend per month. As a college kid, you have no idea, right? right? Like you right. might get an allowance from your parents, but once you start paying rent, mm -hmm. once you start having a monthly like grocery bill, right. and then your you know credit card, then you're like, oh wow, my account balance keeps going down. Who's this FICA? Yeah. What, what are they doing with my money? Right. Yeah. That's when you realize and start thinking, wow, I'm literally not saving any money. Yeah. And the the difference now is that I like to say that. For you, for boomers, the, the, the current financial banking system was built on the mortgage, right? So every financial product really came off the back of selling someone a mortgage. The next iteration of the financial system will be on the back of student loans for this demo. Because, and if you think about it, the highest line item for a family in your generation would have been their mortgage payment. Right now, the highest line item in a monthly spend for my demo will be their student loan payment at like 350 bucks a month or more. Right. So that then becomes the focus, the attention, the emotional connection that you have with your money, not the hope of like buying a home. God, I wish we could get into politics. I'd love to hear your views on, on where to go. But today we're sitting in the offices of a company called Common Bond, which was founded in 2012 to help relieve student debt burden and has funded over $2.5 billion in better student loans. And two things I love about Common Bond. First, a really great founder, David Klein, had the foresight to buy your business model um, and efficiencies, but even more importantly, their partnership with Pencils of Promise, which is an organization just coincidentally I've supported for a number of years, thanks to uh, my client and friend Gary Vaynerchuk telling me about them, and I've been to a number of their events.
events. They provide schools, teachers, and technology to thousands of young students in the developing world. And we're going to link to that because I think that's probably one of the most important things that should come out of this conversation. So how do you like being part of the Common Bond team after running your own shop? It's great. I mean, we ran a pretty competitive process during our acquisition, and which we were in a lucky place to be in. Uh, what really resonated with me about Common Bond is that they just share, and David specifically shared a similar vision, but most of where financial services are going, but most importantly, how to treat customers. And I can just tell you that's very, that's unfortunately not commonplace <laughs> within other fintechs and other larger financial institutions of literally always put the customer first, do whatever you can to make them financially healthier, never force them into positions that make them financially unhealthier because it helps with your bottom line, for example. And you see examples of that that playing out over time, not just to like make you feel good, but to build enterprise value and to build a really sustainable company. You have large companies like a Wells Fargo defrauding people. You have fraud kind of rampant without the throughout the financial system. And over time, then that, the you know people will pay fines here and there, and it's not a big deal on the bottom line right now. But we're, I think we're my, kind of our thesis is that we're the beginning phases of a massive transition where consumers will really care not just like, you know, is convenience there, but is this company a good company? Do they stand for good values? Are they not trying to screw people over? And so I very much so align in that vision of not just being like the right thing to do, but also having brand value and enterprise value over time. And that's a big, that's, that's a big thing to the Gen Z and, and, and I would say also millennials too. That's something that, you know, they care a lot about. So you have a saying I love. It's kind of similar to something I say when we end the show every week. You say, protect yourself first. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I learned this when I was lifeguarding at LBI, actually, which has served me pretty well, is that you, I mean, this plays LBI into... LBI for you non-Jersey <laughs> people is Long Beach Island. <laughs> right. It's a stretch of New Jersey. Ocean that, lifeguarding. You know, yeah, yeah. Almost, you can't save someone before if, unless you're safe, basically. Um, in personal finance, it it's really hard, for example, for a parent to be able to do right by their kids if they themselves haven't thought about their own retirement, if they themselves haven't thought about their own savings. And that's a really hard concept to make people comfortable with because everything that a parent wants to do is just help their kids and provide for their kids and make a great experience for their kids. Sometimes on the flip side, kids are great salespeople <laughs> and can convince their parents to make them do anything that they want them to. So the philosophy that I use to help with those types of conversations is really the best way to help your kid is to help yourself first so that you are stable and then you can help your, your children. It's the same concept of putting the oxygen mask on first before, yeah. before the baby on the, yeah. the airplane. Yeah, right, right. exactly. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for, for taking time today to drop some great wisdom, not only about the student debt crisis, but about what you and now Common Bond are doing to change the world. Keep it up. The world needs more wonderful role models and entrepreneurs like you, and we're going to link everything to Common Bond and also the Money Mentor sites for you to check out. I'm sure there's a lot of folks listening that immediately want, you know, where do I text? How do I, how do, I do this? Actually, let me ask you that question. So if, if someone's immediately thinking, all right, my kid's 16, they're asking all these questions, maybe I should have them start a relationship. How does it start? Yeah, they can go to money-mentor.com and sign up for free. And what I would actually say is probably what would happen is that 
someone's listening, they probably want their kids to start thinking about these things. Right. Their kids probably aren't being like, mom, student loans, you know? That's really where we come in, is to, is to kind of ease a student into that conversation in a non-threatening, non-overwhelming you know, way. More, again, like you're talking to some, like a cool older brother or sister who's going to help you and explain jargon to you in a way that's not boring. <laughs> well, Netflix needs to go back to the days of after-school specials or something and, and create more content to help people because it's a real problem. So thanks again, and thanks to the folks at Resonate Recording. And remember, when it comes to saving for anything in your life, what I like to say is pay yourself first. Have a great week.